Everyone must leave something behind when he dies, my grandfather said. A child, a book, painting, a house, or even a pair of shoes made, or a garden planted. Something that your hand touched in some way so that your soul has somewhere to go when you die, and so that when people look at that tree or that flower that you planted, you're there. Doesn't really matter what you do, he said, so long as you change something from the way that it was before you touched it into something that is like you after you take your hands away. The difference between the man who just cuts lawns and a real gardener is in the touching. The lawn cutter might just as well have not been there at all, but the gardener will be there for a lifetime. Though perhaps confused about the state of the soul after death, this quote from Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 captures the essence of what it means to leave a legacy. That everyone leaves something behind when he dies. In fact, inevitably, you will leave a legacy behind. You will, right? It might not be much. It might not be good. But you will live in such a way that who you were and how you live will have an impact on future generations, even if your name is never, ever remembered. You will leave an imprint, however subtle, through the everyday, mundane ebb and flow of your daily life on everyone and everything that you touch. The difference, as he says, is in the touching. What kind of imprint have you made with your life? Friends, our lives matter. God made our lives to matter. The life that you have been given, the life that you have, however meek, however humble you consider it to be, is a gift from God. God has blessed you. Even though your time here on earth is limited, it's short, he created you and he blessed you to have significance, to make an impact, to influence the world around you. However small that impact might be, and even if you do it for good or you do it for ill. And friends, we know that this is true intuitively because we all have stories We all have stories in our lives, uh, good and bad, of those people around us who had some sort of impact on us. I mean, think about teachers, coaches, or classmates, neighbors, bosses, bullies, people that we've grown up around our whole lives and just shared life together with, and even those who we've interacted with just for mere moments. And yet, whether they were a blessing or a curse to us, whether they were a great influence or a slight one, they made an impact on your life. They left their imprint on you. And the way that they touched you. And you, my friends, you do the same whether you mean to or not, whether you realize it or not. Now, they will probably never memorialize you in song or stone, and it's probably better off that way. 
Your great-great-grandchildren will probably barely know any more about you than your name. But you will leave a legacy. No matter what your life circumstance is no, and what it has been up to this point, you have, you are, and you will impact people around you. What kind of legacy will you leave? Now, that theme of legacy is at the heart of the book of Proverbs. I mean, Proverbs in and of itself is a legacy. It was written and compiled by a father so that he can teach his sons how to live well, how to live life to its fullest, how to live the lives that we were created to live, lives that are full of wisdom and faith and joy and blessing and purpose, lives that are lived for the glory of God and for the good of others, lives that make a difference, lives that leave a godly legacy in everything, in every aspect of our lives, down to like how how we work, how we spend our time and money, the, the way we use our words, and how we train up the next generation, and how to live godly lives in the fear of the Lord. Our lives matter. They matter to God, they matter to ourselves, and they matter to others. And so we are to live wisely. It's what Proverbs is calling us to do, to grow in skill in godly living in every area of our lives, to live in the fear of the Lord, but to do it not just for ourselves, but so that we might pass it on. I mean, that's part of God's amazing plan, that God who has no need of us, the God of the universe, Yet in his wisdom, in his kindness, in his goodness, because he loves us, he includes us in the unfolding plan that he's working out in the lives of each and every single individual that you know. And you're a part of that. And so what I hope that we see over the next two Sundays as we explore this theme of legacy from the book of Proverbs is that true wisdom leaves a godly legacy. True wisdom leaves a godly legacy. Now, when we think about legacy, who naturally comes to mind? More often than not, we think of parents leaving a legacy to their children, right? Think parents and children. That's obvious. That's the context of Proverbs, so it makes sense. And because Proverbs speaks so much to both parents and to children, I'm obviously going to be speaking to them as well. Now, it shouldn't be hard for us to apply the whole children aspect to our own lives because, let's face it, everybody here is a child of somebody. And if you are in Christ, you are doubly a child because not only are you a physical child, a biological child, but you are also a spiritual child of the living God. But even when Proverbs addresses parents, it is also speaking to every single one of us in this room. Even if you don't have children, even if you are young, even if you are a child still living under your parents' authority. And how do I know that? Well, because King Solomon wrote and compiled these wisdom sayings from God, including these ones on parenting, and he gave them, he imparted them, he passed them on to his young, more than likely teenage sons, 
Sons who did not have children of their own. Sons who were not yet married. And we know this because the last time we were in Proverbs, we had all this wisdom about what to look for in an excellent wife. And yet he's teaching his sons what it means to be a faithful parent. See, just because you don't currently have children, don't think that this is not for you because it is. God gives us wisdom beforehand so that when the time comes, we know what to do about it, right? And a wise young person will hear that, they'll listen, they'll receive it, they'll learn from it, and they're ready to go. And so there's no better time for you to learn about parenting than right here and right now. You can thank him and you can thank me later. But leaving a legacy is not simply biological. Leaving a legacy is inevitable. Regardless of your age or your status, you leave a legacy behind. You imprint, you make an impact on your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the classroom, on the ball field, and especially in the church. Those who are in Christ are now a part of the family of God who have been given the great privilege and the joyful responsibility of making disciples for Christ, of being there to make children of the living God. That's what we get to do. You, get to re you realize that we get to be in the delivery room at their spiritual birth. We get to feed them the pure spiritual milk of the word so that they might grow up into salvation. We get to be there to train them and to teach them and to equip them and to love them and to discipline them and to nourish them to help others grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That requires investment. That, that's a commitment. That's being a, a parent, a spiritual parent for others. We get to do that. Such a great blessing. And so even if the Lord should never give you biological children, you are still called to serve as a spiritual father or mother to leave a legacy of godly wisdom for children in the faith. And so the text that we look at this morning and next from Proverbs on this theme of legacy, they apply to us all, to every one of us. And that's especially true for parents and children. And so if leaving, or, or if true wisdom leaves a godly legacy, whether we are parents or children, how can we strive then to leave a godly legacy behind? Well, Proverbs gives us four exhortations. We're gonna look at two this morning. We'll look at two next week, Lord willing. It's a huge topic. I tried to do it in one sermon. I got blown away and I kept changing it and changing it and changing it. And so here's what we got, right? We're gonna look at two exhortations this morning. This morning, I'm gonna deal more with the formative aspects, the formative exhortations for how we build a godly legacy. And then next week, we'll, excuse me, Lord willing, we'll deal more with the corrective aspects of creating a godly legacy. And so... The first exhortation that Proverbs gives us when we just kind of boil it all down is to receive and to teach true wisdom. Let's begin by looking at Proverbs 22, verse 6. You can find it on page 544 in the Bibles, there in the chairs. 
Proverbs 22, verse 6. It says, Train a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train a child up in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's probably familiar to many of us. Now, as those in a position of spiritual responsibility for another, we are called to train up our children in the faith in the way that they should go. And that way that they should go, let's face it, is the way that we all should go, right? This way of wisdom that we learned about in Proverbs. And if you've been with us at, for any amount of time as we've gone through this sermon series, or if you're just familiar at all with the book of Proverbs, then you know that, that this call to receive God's wisdom ought to come as no surprise to us at all. I mean, if you think about it, back in chapter 4, in chapter 4 alone, it said 38 different times in 38 different ways that we are, need to get wisdom. We need to receive wisdom. We need to get insight. We need to prize her highly. We need to love her. Because if we do, she's going to guard us. She's going to esteem us. She's going to exalt us highly. There's nothing that you can desire that is more uh, of greater comparison. Over and over and over, we're told the, of the beauty of wisdom, of the value of wisdom, of the blessing of wisdom, how there's nothing that can compare to it, not gold, not silver, not precious jewels, nothing that you desire in this earth can compare to this wisdom that we receive from God. And this is Solomon telling us this, right? Solomon, King Solomon. I mean, the guy who had it all, right? I mean, just, he had, he's the richest man on the at that time, he had countless wives. That's not calling us to do the same. But nevertheless, this guy lived in excess in every single area of his life. This is also the same God who's, guy who said, this is vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. It's Ecclesiastes. But what he tells us here in Proverbs is he says, look, there is nothing of greater value. There's no greater blessing that you could ever receive than receiving the wisdom of God. That's the best thing. That's what life is about. That's how he began his, his reign in praying that the Lord would give him wisdom because he knew that was the best thing that he could have. And he commends that to us. And so there's no greater legacy that we can leave to the next generation than to receive and to teach wisdom. But something else ought to really stand out to us about this repeated call throughout the book of Proverbs to receive wisdom and this way that we should go. And it's this, that we are not wise by nature. No one is born wise. No one is just automatically wise. We're automatically fools. Wisdom is not within us, it is outside us. Wisdom is from God. And this way, it must be learned. We by nature are fools. If you skip down just a couple of verses to Proverbs 22 verse 15, it tells us that folly is bound up within our hearts even from childhood. Right? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. We are born fools. And the reality is we will walk further and further and further and further down that path of folly unless we receive God's wisdom. Unless we stop, unless we turn, unless we accept this that is contrary to our nature, to our desires, to our feelings. 
The only way for us to turn from this path of folly that leads to sin, that leads to further futility, that leads to eternal condemnation is to be trained, guided, and taught this way of wisdom. Proverbs 3.18 reminds us that wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and that those who hold her fast are called blessed. And so if we want to live well in this world, if we want to live life to its fullest, the lives that we were intended to live, lives of eternal blessing with God, we must learn this way. We must learn this wisdom. We must receive it from the only one who is truly wise, the author of wisdom himself. We must learn it from God. And just to make it abundantly clear to us, God's wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made the foolishness, uh, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So God's wisdom is not like the supposed wisdom of the world. So the first step that any of us must take up this way of wisdom, the Proverbs calls us to, is to turn away from our sin and to receive God's wisdom through faith in Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of all of God's wisdom. And that entrance into wisdom, that's entirely the work of God by grace in our lives. But friends, that is not all that there is. It's not like that's it. Then once you've done that, you're over, you've received all the wisdom that you can from God, and now you just kind of move on with life doing whatever you want. Because we've also learned from Proverbs that God doesn't just wave this magic wisdom wand and make us wise. Instead, what God does is he uses means. He uses first and foremost his word. This is God's revelation of himself. He imparts wisdom to us through his word. The Holy Spirit illumines our hearts and minds and opens our eyes so that we can see and cherish and trust and learn this wisdom. We learn wisdom through life experiences when we come face to face with a trial or circumstance, a situation or decision. We can either actively choose the wisdom of God or by default choose folly to choose the wisdom of the world, but because God is gracious, we can still learn even when we make mistakes. We learn wisdom through the counsel of trusted, godly, wise friends, most specifically the church. But over and over and over and over again, Proverbs says one of the main ways that God gives, imparts wisdom to us is through parents. I mean, again, that's what Proverbs is doing. 23 times throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon implores his sons. He says, my son, my son, my son, 
My son, he wants his sons to understand, to learn this wisdom, to listen to his voice, to obey what he's calling him to, to heed his instruction. We have here 31 chapters of a father intentionally striving to teach wisdom to his sons. So intentional was he that he wrote these things down, he compiled them together, he bound them together into a book, and we can now read them 3,000 years after the fact. That is some intentional parenting right there. And let's keep in mind something too, right? This is the busy King Solomon, right? King Solomon. Whatever excuse we can give for not teaching our wisdom to our children because of busyness, you do realize that King Solomon has us all beat, right? I mean, he's leading a nation. He's building a temple for God. He's got all sorts of business transactions we can't even fathom, right? He doesn't have just one household to manage. He's got hundreds, right? And, and, and we don't have the, the Queen of Sheba just kind of popping by, interrupting family time. But he does. And yet he still finds a way to teach his sons in the way that they should go. And nor does Solomon delegate that task out to the schools or to the church. He doesn't just pass the buck on that. And again, this is Solomon, richest man of that day, right? He could afford all the best tutors, all the best coaches, all the best priests, all the best you name it, but he doesn't do that. He still takes an active role in teaching wisdom to his children. He says, look, train them up. Train a child up in the way that they should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Why does he say that? We've talked about this before. It's because there is something irreplaceable in the relationship between a parent and a child. It cannot be replaced. It cannot be reproduced. We have a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity like no one else has with our kids because we spend so much time with them, because we've developed trust, because we fed and nourished and cared for them in such a way. We share a home together. This is an opportunity that no teacher or no coach can replace or reproduce. God has gifted that to us. That privilege, that responsibility is ours. He's saying, look, parents, This is your responsibility. Train up the child. This is a responsibility that God has given to parents. We see this throughout the the Old Testament that has led up to this point. I mean, that responsibility fell to Adam. It fell to Noah. It fell to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This responsibility of parents was formalized in the law that God gave through Moses during the time of the Exodus. It was a, a responsibility that was reiterated again in Deuteronomy as Moses spoke to the second generation. And it is a responsibility that continues even into the New Testament because Paul would later affirm in Ephesians and Colossians, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He doesn't say teachers. He doesn't say churches. He says fathers. As parents, we have the responsibility, regardless of our other commitments or expectations or circumstances to train up our children in the way that they should go. That is not someone else's responsibility. It is yours. 
And fathers, that is especially true of you. That word train up, train up a child in the way that he should go. That word train up means to dedicate. To dedicate your child to Christ. Not by taking them up in front of the church in some formal baptism-esque ceremony or to hold them up to the heavens and say, Lord, this child belongs to you. But by committing your life to raising that child up to be gung-ho for Christ. You know, Ray Ortland points out that that word train up is related to an Arabic verb that was used of rubbing the palate of a newborn child with a date mixture to get that child to suck. It means to accustom a child to a taste and to motivate the child to take it in. That's what we do when we train up. We accustom them to a taste. We motivate the child to take it in. That's what we do when we train them up in the way that they should go. We help them to taste and to see that the Lord is good and to lead them to feast upon God's word. Now, parents, that can't happen if you are not dedicated to the way that you should go. You can't teach what you do not know. You can't train them to love and to be passionately committed to God if you don't know and are not passionately committed to God. But regardless, you're going to train them. They will learn from you. They will follow in your ways. You're either going to receive and teach wisdom or by default you will receive and teach folly. But they will learn and they will follow. They will love what you love. They will desire what you desire. They will go in the way that you go. Here's the biggest problem that we as parents who love and profess to follow Christ have with this. It's the biggest problem. We love and follow the world more. We love and follow the American dream. We train our kids that the American dream is the way that they should go when we ought to be warning them against it, that it is a pathway to hell. But yet so often we're overcome by it. We spend countless hours trying to help our kids to be successful in society through grades, through income, through sports, through beauty, but we can barely muster a few minutes to train them how to be successful in eternity. Now, again, I'm not saying don't do those other things. I mean, as you guys know, Layden is playing baseball. And I committed to be an assistant coach for Layden as he's played baseball this year. He's now in All-Stars. It just kind of keeps on going. It's a little consuming, a little overwhelming. And it's not to say that we've got to give up baseball. What it means, though, is like, why are we doing baseball? Are we doing baseball for the sake of baseball? Or am I using baseball as a means to teach character? Am I using it as a means to teach perseverance and hard work and commitment to other people and teamwork? Because all of those things matter to God. I want to teach Layden to be a man on the field and use that field as a means to teach Layden to be a man in all areas of his life. So that's redeemable. That's good. 
You see, our problem, as much as we want to think it's our ability and understanding, it's not. Because here's the thing, you can learn those things. You just start from where you are and you move forward. And God is faithful, right? Regardless of where you find yourself today, you can grow in wisdom and you can grow in your ability to commend that wisdom to other people. It's a guarantee. God is faithful. He will surely do it. That's not our problem. Our problem is our wants and our desires. Our problem is what we love more than God. Our problem is that we want to go in the way that we want to go. And it's not God's way. It's not the way that we should go. And in the process, we train our kids and others to do the same. You train your kids, you dedicate your child to Christ by dedicating yourself to Christ so enthusiastically, so passionately that they taste and see how good it is from your table and they want more. And friends, when that is the case, when you train them in that way, when you dedicate yourself to that extent, they won't want to depart from it when they are older. They'll love it. They'll long for it. They'll cherish it. That's what happens when we see radical love and revolutionary faith. And that is what we're to train them toward. Francis Schaeffer wrote, one of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is to ask them to be conservative. To go through life just kind of standing still against culture and saying no to everything. He says, Christianity is not conservative, but revolutionary. To be conservative today is to miss the whole point. For conservatism means standing in the flow of the status quo. We must teach the young to be revolutionaries. To be revolutionaries against the status quo. Friends, to be a Christian is not simply to stand against the stream of culture, but to seek to lead it in a new direction for the glory of Christ. That's why we're here. It is saying yes to Jesus and to be so passionately for what the Lord is for, to radically commit ourselves to his ways and to teach others to do the same. And when we do that, it is redemptive, it is transformative, it changes. Not that all things will be redeemed, But when we are truly salt and light to the world around us, what happens? They will see our good deeds and they will give glory to our Father in heaven. And that can't happen if we look just like and we live for the world. Our young people will not have that kind of passion, that kind of tenacity, that kind of God-honoring boldness that Christ calls us to unless they begin to learn that from us. If we depart from God's wisdom, they will depart from God's wisdom. But if we train them up in the way that they should go, when they are old, not only will they not depart from it, but they will outrun us. They will surpass us. 
They will build upon that good foundation that we have begun in Christ Jesus. And it will be glorious. Friends, that's what we're to be about. That's the kind of legacy that we want to seek to create in our homes, among our family. That's the kind of legacy that we want to have here at Redeemer Church, where generation after generation after generation far surpasses us. But again, if we want to train them up in that way, that's the kind of dedication that we have to have. Now that line, last line there in verse 22, verse 6, train them up in the way that they should go. When they are old, they will not depart from it. That's not a guarantee or a promise from God that if you are a faithful parent, that your children will be faithful to God. It's not a guarantee. That's not what it's intended to do. You see, your child still has to choose wisdom. You can't do that for them. They still have to choose it. You can train them and train them and train them and train them, but they have to be willing to receive it. And unfortunately, not everyone will. And so if you were faithful, not perfect, but faithful, you know, don't Beat yourself up with guilt if your child is unbelieving. That's not on you because only the Holy Spirit can change a sinner's heart. We just encourage you to pray for them, to entrust them to the good, wise, and powerful Heavenly Father who loves them far more than you do. To children, young people, and really to all of us, This is no guarantee that because your parents were faithful, God-fearing Christians, that you are a Christian. Faith is not, their faith is not automatically your faith. You see, you must listen and respond. God sent his one and only son to live a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father, life that you could never, ever live. And he gave up that life by dying on a cross to pay for the sin of all of your foolishness, all of your rebellion, all of your disobedience, so that you might be restored to God. He rose three days later to prove that you can indeed truly find wisdom and have eternal life with God if you would just turn away from your folly, that path of folly of choosing your own way and follow his way. He has blessed us with his word. He has blessed us with parents. He's blessed us with the church to train us in what it means to follow him. But you must receive the Lord's teaching. You must respond. It must become your own. And for those of us who are in Christ, Proverbs calls us to listen to our parents' godly wisdom, to be trained, to be teachable, to be humble, to be accustomed, to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good, to dedicate ourselves to receiving this wisdom, to receiving Christ to commit ourselves to his way so that when we are old, we will not want to depart from it, but instead will 
teach others the same. There's so much more that could be said, but we need to move on. And so godly, leaving a godly legacy must first be done by receiving and teaching wisdom. But all by itself, that is not enough. You see, we can't simply receive and teach. We must second obey and model wisdom. Somewhere along the way, maybe this has been mankind from, from the beginning, but we certainly see it in our day, that we've traded wisdom for the knowledge of facts, the knowledge of data. We like to know things. We like to have the right answers. We like to put ourselves in a position where we can then teach other people what these right answers are, what we have in our heads, but there's some disconnect between our heads and our heart that it doesn't always transfer. Wisdom is far more than intellect or the knowledge of data. It's living in light of that data. It's knowing what is right and knowing how to live according to what is right. It's applying the truth of God to every aspect of our lives so that we can navigate the pitfalls of sin and temptation to live lives that truly reflect the nature, character, and commitments of God. Wisdom is skill in godly living. It's knowing the deep truths about God and living in a way that is consistent with those truths. And as Christians even, we, we tend to gravitate towards theology and abstraction. We like the idea of learning about the Bible. We like learning truths. We like to read doctrine, but we don't always live according to that doctrine. Well, friends, I hope you understand that that is not true theology. True theology is life and doctrine. It's not simply head knowledge, but head, heart, and hands knowledge. If we don't have a strong desire to obey God's wisdom and to model it for others, there's room for us to question whether or not we've actually received it. You see, here's the thing about obedience. Our obedience, our modeling what we've learned is our way of giving ourselves assurance and bearing witness to other people that we have truly, indeed, received this wisdom. This is how we show it. We show it through our obedience. And if we don't have a strong desire to obey God's wisdom and to model it for others, then how on earth could we teach it to others? What we end up doing, in effect, is saying, do as I say, not as I do. Now, parents, I know this has happened for me, right? Have your kids ever called you out on that? Well, Dad... You said this, but you just did this. Have you been in a position where someone has said that to you, but their lives have been different, right? And you've seen that in other people. Let me ask you a question. What did that do for your relationship with that person when they employed that philosophy of do as I say, not as I do? What did that do for your relationship with them? Our children, even when they're young, they can sense hypocrisy when they see it. And that hypocrisy destroys trust and it devalues the message. You know, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11, it's page 542 if you want to flip there. Proverbs 20, 11 says, even a child makes himself known by his acts, 
by whether his conduct is pure and upright. You see, our outward behavior, even that of a child, reveals the true nature of our hearts. Our conduct proves whether or not our hearts are pure and upright. You see, you can talk theology all that you want. You can show up on Sunday and put on a grand show of, of just the appearance of godliness. But eventually, your true nature is going to show through. And it's going to be revealed in your acts. It's going to be revealed in your actions. And you might be able to hide it here on Sunday morning, but you won't be able to hide it at home. Your conduct will give it away. Friends, God is not pleased by our outward conformity, by our religious observance, by our theological acumen, by our strong feelings and sense of worship in the moment, or even by our ethical practice. Because we can do all of those things and our hearts still be hard towards God. He wants all of us, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Not because he needs us, but because that's what we were made for. A heart that is pure and upright, a heart that loves God and has received his wisdom, earnestly desires to teach it to others. And if they do that, then they will desire also to obey and to model that wisdom. Their lives will match their doctrine. They will strive to do as they say and as they call others to do. Obedience is not about begrudgingly following rules. Obedience and modeling gives expression to the true nature and character of our hearts. Friends, this is why God calls us to obey. Not to get you to do something that you do not want to do, but to allow you to show what you most love. This is why it's so important when we think about discipleship, especially the discipleship of our children. In Proverbs 23, verse 26, page 554, 2326 says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. In teaching, in training, and in instruction, we are asking for their hearts. We're asking them to love us, to trust us, to respond to us. Give, my son, give me your heart. Preaching Lab, guys, this is why Brian Chappell talks about logos, pathos, and ethos. How our words, our passions, and our very lives have to all come together if we are going to preach faithfully. When we sit down to train our children, we are asking them for their hearts. We are asking them to trust us and to listen to what we are going to teach them. And the guarantee that we offer to them, the reason why they should listen to what we are about to say to them and obey our voice, is be, why they are to entrust their hearts to us is because they can see our ways. They can observe our ways. They know that we are trustworthy. My son, give me your heart and observe my ways. Trust me to love you 
and to lead out in this. Do as I say, because this is who I am, because this is what I do, because this is what has captured my heart. This is the most important thing and I want to commend it to you. Friends, is this not what God says to us? My son, give me your heart. And you know that you can trust me because you can observe my ways. They're all good and right and true. Is this not what Jesus did for his disciples when he said to them, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as I know my father, my father knows me. Why? Well, because I lay down my life for the sheep. Is this not what Jesus calls all of his disciples to do? That our love for Christ and our love for each other is displayed in our desire to obey his commands. If you question that, read John 15 and read all of 1 John. And this is humbling to think about, isn't it? In seeking to train and instruct your children or others, you are asking them for their trust. Why should they listen? Why should they trust you if your character is untrustworthy? If you don't obey and model what you supposedly have received and teach. You see, again, this is why we must strive to be wholehearted. This is why the complacent, American dream-loving status quo version of Christianity will not suffice to train up our children in the fear of the Lord. God is wholeheartedly committed to his children. You do realize that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ was wholeheartedly committed to his church as he poured out his very life hanging from a cross so that his blood might cover all of our sin. He defeated sin and he rose and death and rose from the grave so that we might have life of eternal blessing with God, with him forever. This is what we have been given through faith in Jesus Christ and we are called to model that for others. We're not just to tell them about Jesus. We are to show them Jesus. And they won't see him in our disobedience or in our imitation of the world. Again, we're, we're humbled. And not only are we asking those that we train for their hearts, but we know so often we are half-hearted hypocrites ourselves, that we are duplicitous, that we are double-minded, that we love other things. And so what do we do? What do we do with this? Well, this is why the Lord has blessed us with repentance and faith. When God reveals sin in our hearts, 
we can confess those sins to God and those whom we've sinned against. We can ask them for forgiveness. We can ask God to change our hearts to help us to love him and not this duplicitous love for him and the world. We can turn away from our sin and trust that God, uh, through the blood of Christ, is sufficient to cover all of our sins. We can repent and believe. We can turn again and trust in Christ's perfect obedience for us. Let me just say this as a word of encouragement to you parents. Quite honestly, there's perhaps no better way for us to model obedience to our children and for them to see us repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ. Repentance and faith in that way is wholehearted. When children see their dads with tears in their eyes, confessing the ways that they've sinned against them, they know that he is serious. They know that this matters. They know that he fears God above all else. When they see us worship the Lord in joy and gladness, that we sing our hearts out to God, they know that this matters. When they see us strive to be bold in the faith, to step out, to risk for Christ, when they, stri- when they see us strive to imitate Christ, to love what he loves, and to live for him and his ways, then they know that this matters more than anything else. That is genuine, wholehearted obedience that models Christ. That's what we are called to do. They don't need a perfect model of obedience. You can't be that and you would be stepping on the toes of Christ. They already have that in him. They don't need a perfect model of obedience. They've got it. What they need is a genuine, a sincere, an earnest, a passionate model for Christ. They need to see that in you. Not just in me not just in somebody that comes in and out of their lives. They need to see it in you. We need to see it in you. You need to see it in us. That's what God wants from us. Now, to children, to those who are in a position to be trained by a spiritual father or mother, God wants all of your hearts too. It's not because he needs it. Because he loves you so much. And he knows what's best for you. Give him your heart. and Observe his ways. He's given you parents. He's given you spiritual parents who love you and who earnestly desire to train you up in the fear of the Lord. And he calls you just practically in your daily life. Children, obey your parents in everything because this pleases me. He says to you, even in a child, even you make yourself known by your acts by whether your conduct is pure and upright. 
And if your parents are not asking you to sin, then you are called to obey them. This is one of the ways that you show your heart that you honor and obey Christ. Regardless of your age or your experience, if you are in Christ, you too are called to obey and model God's wisdom. And so these are the formative ways that God gives us to leave a godly legacy, to receive and to teach God's wisdom, and to obey and model this wisdom, and to do this with all of our hearts. Next week, we're going to explore the corrective ways Proverbs gives us to leave a godly legacy behind, to train and to be disciplined by wisdom, and to rejoice and to make glad in wisdom. As parents, as children, as Redeemer Church, these are the means that God gives us to leave a godly legacy for generation and generation and generation to come. He is faithful, and he will surely do it. Your Proverbs gives us hope that our faithful obedience will bless the generations to follow. In Proverbs 14, 26, it says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. In Proverbs 20, verse 7, says, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. May generations come to find their refuge and their blessing in God because we feared the Lord, because we found our confidence in him, because we were clothed in the righteousness of Christ and enabled then to walk in his integrity. And so may we receive and teach and obey and model because true wisdom leaves a godly legacy. Let's pray. Father, what a gift we have been given that you allow us to participate in your unfolding plan to reveal your glory and commend it from one generation to the next. That we have this great privilege, this joyful responsibility to teach, to train, to model what it means to follow Christ. And Lord, we know that so often we are half-hearted, we are complacent, we put other things ahead of you. And so Lord, we ask you to reveal those to us so that we might repent and believe. And I pray that we do that with great faith, knowing that Christ's sacrifice is perfect. It is sufficient to cover our every sin. And that by your grace, we may indeed 
do what you've called us to do. Not because of ourselves, but because of your great mercy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.